LT, my friend, it's almost upon us. The last ever wellness summit in Melbourne. The last one ever? Well, definitely the last one for at least two years, LT. That's right, this year's wellness summit will be the last one for the foreseeable future in Melbourne. It will be the biggest, the greatest, the most inspiring, the most empowering summit that you've ever seen. The last one in Melbourne? That's right, LT. That's ridiculous. I can't believe my ears. But I guess if that's the case, then let's go to thewellnesssummit.com if you want to enter the code FINALMELBOURNE16. That's FINALMELBOURNE16 to get $100 off your regular price tickets. You get to enjoy two days of food, movement, and mindset on September 10th and 11th at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Center. Hey, LT, did we say it's the last one? It's the last one in Melbourne. Oh, good. All right. I'm glad we told him. Hey, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. Enter those codes. Save some money. See you at the summit. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up for a Chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Mara. And Kim's just cracked me up before we start the podcast. So I'm sorry if I sound like I'm halfway through a laugh as we do our introduction. But you'll very quickly understand why we have an incredible guest on today's show, somebody who has a conversation that is going to open up the eyes and the ears of millions across this planet. And Cindy is actually going to do the introduction, but I'm going through the website, I'm going through all of the information about this particular woman, and I am absolutely in love from my toes to my nose i um, honestly i think today's podcast is probably going to be one of the best that we've done cindy you spunky monkey over to you go 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 do it and i i agree with you um so we have marag gamble um on the line with us and I met Marag, well, I was introduced um, to meet Marag by Costa, and a lot of people will know the name Costa if you're interested in gardening. He's um, the very infamous ABC gardener. And I said to Costa, Costa, will you please come to my farm and um, tell me what I can do on my farm? Because everybody that I ask to come to my farm tells me to use glyphosate and Roundup and and I don't get it. I want an organic farm. I don't want a chemically sprayed farm that's going to kill my future generations. So he suggested that I ring Marag, who lives probably as the crow flies, just minutes from my house, but as the drive goes, it's probably about half an hour. And so I invited Marag to come to my 60 acres at Mullaney. And she was the first person who made me look at weeds very differently. She called them primaries, not weeds, they're primaries, and explained to me the importance of primaries. She gave me the best suggestions to run forward with my farm because it was looking like Jurassic Park. Um, And it was because of Marag that I um, put out my feelers to find a farmer, like, Marag gave me three suggestions and I went back to Howard and I said, these are the three suggestions that Marag has said. What do you think we should do? And he said, let's get a farmer. So um, 
since that time, I've been following Rag and I love her posts and it. And her blog is my my permaculture life. Is that it, Marag? Is that the name of it? Our permaculture, our life. permaculture life. That's more inclusive, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. It our because you have a family, and um, I just, I, you know, where I'd like to start. I would like to start at the very beginning um, when you're in the womb. Actually, no. <laughs> what what got you into this? What got you? To want to be at Crystal Waters where you are and create um, this amazing lifestyle that you have of homeschooling and permaculture where you get a lot of your food from your garden. What, what got you to even start this? Well, it may well have been while I was in the womb. I, I grew up in a, in a place where my parents were always talking about things like permaculture and natural health. My dad and mum designed and built their own eco home in the suburbs of Melbourne, you know, oriented the right way with passive cooling and thermal mass. And, and I was the kind of daddy kid at school that always had the, the black bread with the, the home crushed peanut butter and, the, you know, never went to the doctors. We were just, you know, that was mum's thing. And, and I guess from that, I'm always talking about caring for animals and caring for, for the earth and, protecting, uh, you know, for future generations. That kind of ethic was always there from the start. And so I, I kind of naturally headed off towards doing um, um, uh, sort of environmental design at university. But I kind of got halfway through that and I started feeling a little bit bogged down. And I discovered this place over in England called Schumacher College and I kind of went on a bit of a pilgrimage as, as you do. Well, not many people did back then, I suppose, but a lot of people do now. But... I headed off on a pilgrimage to, to visit this place and met up with some amazing mentors um, who I stay in touch with now, people like um, Vandana Shiva who just talks all about, you know, the importance of the seed and Helena Norberg-Hodge who talks so much about the importance of connecting with community and relocalising our food systems and really looking at some of the really big, chunky issues. And so I volunteered with her in, in Ladakh. I, I just, when I met her, my heart just sort of sang and I, I kind of almost threw myself at her and said, how can I help you? So I went and volunteered with her up in the other side of Himalayas and I met the most amazing people and communities up there that it was a sense of, wow, this is what sustainable living means. I kind of learnt it in a head sense at university and through my sort of youth activism, but they get it, I don't think, until I went there and, and saw these people who were just so happy. They were so alive and so connected with their place and their community that it was, you know, they hardly had any money and they lived in simple mud brick but very graceful homes and all dressed in beautiful natural fibre clothing that had come from materials they'd spun from their yaks and ate circularly wholesome food that they ground up themselves, all sorts of things. And I thought, so, gosh, there's something in this life that they're so happy, but yet they have, you know, it's, it's not about the money. It's about something else. And so it kind of set me on a bit of a journey to think, well, how can we, how can we not necessarily going back? Because how can we live a life that is so happy and healthy and vibrant and connected back here, you know, in Australia? And that's where I sort of began to embrace permaculture again because I found that as a very useful tool to to, I guess, frame learning about it and expressing it to the community here. 
So can you just give me um, a typical day in your life as it stands now? <laughs> um, I, I, which end do I start? I go to bed at about 3 o'clock at night, <laughs> sleep for a couple of hours, and then I get up and wander out through the garden with the kids and feed the, feed the chooks and... See what's happening this morning. I was watching a, a beautiful green tree snake trying to find its way up a tree and checking out which flowers the bees were heading to today and, and seeing what birds were around. We saw the most amazing fit bird um, come in and land in some of the native trees that were just fruiting beautifully. So spending time, I guess, outside just observing what the day's like and what's happening in the sky, what's, what's happening. Um, finding what good foods out in the garden for today, so knowing what to go out for lunch. I don't pick it until it's actually just the right time for, for the meal because, you know, everything degrades so quickly as soon as you pick it out of the ground. And then I get the kids started with thinking about what they're going to do for the day with their homeschooling. And it's a very much self-directed thing from from them. They're 10, 8, and, and then a preschooler, 3. He kind of um, does what we all do for the day. But I don't actually, I don't follow a curriculum per se. And that took me a little bit of time to, to get over, not having that. But I've learned to really trust my young people here that they, they, they have, once they find a passion for what it is that they want to learn, they just dive into it and look at it from all different angles. And I couldn't plan something as well as what they throw themselves out and explore through their natural curiosity. And so it's really about trying to I try and support them in the morning of finding their finding their passions and finding what questions they need to ask for the day. Um, I, I my husband and I both work from home and so on different days we kind of tag team. You know, for the at the moment I'm here talking with you and while Evan's um, doing some homeschooling with the kids and you know after I finish talking with you I'll go and take over and He'll come up and do some work. I'll probably head off on a bit of a, a, a ride out through the valley in the afternoon. I, I just find that's such a good way to clear my head and, and get connected and, and reground myself. Um, we head off on kids' activities to do all sorts of fun. We find amazing mentors around here. It's just incredible. We've had the wildest scientist inventors and um, songwriter musicians that we go and, and sit with and they teach the kids. And in the evening time, once everyone's gone to bed, that's my time to write and think and work and plan. Um, so that's my day today. But tomorrow I actually have a school group coming here and um, I run something I call um, the Earth School and I have a program where students from high schools come and I immerse them in what this world of thinking and action is all about. They're often coming from a geography, senior geography levels and talking about um, feeding the world's people is the main thread. And somewhere in that geography curriculum is, is permaculture. And so I, I talk to them all about how they can implement permaculture to address some of the, the key issues around them. I used to be a food politics lecturer down at Griffith University, so I kind of try and take them on all different levels from a, a really head, uh, you know, fill their head with lots of really big ideas and then, talk about Ladakh and how communities like that feed feed themselves and then get their hands into the earth and we, we plant things and we harvest things and I get them smelling and tasting things as they walk through my permaculture garden. So that will be tomorrow. 
So not a typical day every day, but, you know, every day is a, a wonderfully different day and I love that. Yeah. So, so I have two questions, Moray. <laughs> the first one, when you know a school's coming in, do you say to your husband, heck, we need all those lemon trees planted, let's make them do that? <laughs> <laughs> and the second question I have, do you ever yell at your children or are you ever in an argument with your husband? It just sounds so idyllic. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing with the students tomorrow first. Um, I, I just wrote on my blog last night about making little soil blocks, which I think are the most fantastic ways actually propagating seedlings easy, particularly for novices and, and for kids too because they can get their hands around them. So I thought I'd, I'd try out a few different techniques with them. And uh, so I'm going to get them muddy up to the elbows with um, mixing up all different sorts of clay and compost and, and get them planting up some seeds, which will be the seedlings that I plant out for my spring planting. So, yes, they, they are doing real things and I tell them that and they actually really enjoy that fact that it's not just another school activity. It's actually something that they're learning something but they're feeling like they're contributing and I guess that's a lot of what I try and do with a lot of the education programs is create a context in which people can learn that has that sense of meaning and connection and depth. And I think somehow when you learn in that way, the, the pathways in your brain just get so much more enhanced and you remember those experiences and, you, and you're able to sort of take them away with you and apply them in other contexts because they're just so deeply ingrained because there's sort of a rich fabric that connects you to them um if how do you um do i argue i don't, I don't argue with my husband i don't know we've been we met when we were 23 oh. i'm now 47 and i we met here at crystal waters actually doing taking a permaculture course together and we've traveled the world um we've, we've worked doing permaculture in about 20 different countries and we've we've grown together and we've explored a whole lot of different ideas together and our pathways have just stayed so consistently aligned it's just the most beautiful thing I feel so blessed um and for me having that that supportive relationship and a happy relationship is just such a grounding thing for me I I, I just so appreciate it and um do I yell at my kids oh gosh sometimes <laughs> I, I want to say no <laughs> <laughs> Good, you're um, human. You're, I had you up in super guru, um, unbelievable status, and I was about to go. I'm out of here, so I'm really happy to hear that. You know, I really try not. I I have to say that I I am always the first to admit when I'm wrong, though. And if I do happen to say something to them that I, you, you know, automatically, immediately, I go, oh, that was the wrong thing to do, or I wish I hadn't said that. I apologise immediately. And I, and, I, and I kind of talk to them about it. I say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, that was really the, the wrong way. You know, I, I reacted and, you know, I did that because I felt this way. And I, and, and I do that because I want them to understand about their emotions and how they react and respond to different situations too and to feel okay that they can, you know, that, you know, if something happens, just stand up immediately and, and admit when something doesn't go right or when you do something wrong. Don't try and hide or run away from it. Just stand up and take responsibility when something does, yeah, go a bit awry. 
it also is an indicator. And uh, my daughter is, is often the, the first one to tell me, she says, Mummy, I think you might need some more sleep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thank you, darling. I know. And I, I, I will take that on board. And I, I try to get a couple of more hours that next night <laughs> or go for another ride just to clear my head a little bit more or go from, you know, even better than that. I just love going out walking. We have these favourite spots down beside the river. It's a beautiful part of the, um, the upper Mary River here where it's just these gorgeous rock formations and little, little waterfalls and natural gullies and swimming holes. Not very good for swimming now, but we love just going down there and lighting a little fire and, and just sitting and, and chatting and exploring and telling stories by the river. And, uh, yeah, I, was, I can't think of anything better to do than to go down there with my kids and just feel that sense of open space and freedom and just that there's something about being in nature together with my kids and exploring it and, and seeing the world through their eyes. I, it just, you know, it brings you very much into that being in the moment, in the, in the now. You know, I think quite often we can get carried away with our adult lives and the more I spend time with my children, the, the more it brings me back into just being so connected to what is around me because they see it so more clearly, I think. And I really do try and encourage you know, them to have this this outdoor life and appreciation and observation and um, to notice what's happening in the world and and to see the impact and and it's it's really interesting because we live out here in the eco village and you know and I I take them out on expeditions all over the place and we've done some international travelling too and and when they go to a, a city or somewhere and. Uh, even my three-year-old the other day, I went down to the Sunshine Coast and he was busy lagging behind. Come on, Monty, what you up to? He says, I'm picking up rubbish, mummy. Oh. <laughs> it's like, he was there, he had all this rubbish under his arm. You know, I walked past and he was seeing it. It was an insult to his sensibilities of, uh, as this young person who lives in a natural environment. It's actually really interesting. Well, now that he's starting to write and draw and things, I'm... He starts. He's starting to do these pictures, and I'm drawing these pictures. And what's that, darling? He says, "That's the that's the rocks that we go hopping on as we go across the river." And and there's other ones where they're um, it's this pond, and it's all about the mud and the sticks on the side of the pond. And so everything's about that, you know, the visceral experience of being connected in a, in this nature world. Um, it's, you know, there's no cars or trucks that he draws. He draws about the things that he sees on a daily basis, and I, and I, and I think, yeah, this is a it's such a, a lovely place for for kids to be able to grow up in this environment. I'm so glad that I, I chose to live here and chose to raise my my children here because I feel it's such a, an important start in their life. You know, particularly in these young years, where all your thoughts and ideas about everything are being formed that their decisions, wherever they go in their life, that they will have this deep inner sense of respect for nature and that their decisions will take all of that into account. So, you know, I feel that the more that we can connect our children with nature and they have this great sense of respect, that, you know, we'll end up having a far more healthier and happier life. And, and of course, the healthier the earth is, the healthier we all become, you know. I think, you know, part of, I felt a lot of, I don't know, as a, as a teenager, I think I felt a, 
I felt deeply about the destruction of our planet and 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 um, injustices that were happening in the world to different peoples, and I think that motivated me a lot to do what I to do what I do. Uh, but I see from them. I grew up in a more urban environment. I see from them it's just coming from because they see how things are so free and so um, clean and natural and they, they contrast that very vividly when they, they go to other places where that's not happening. They ask me why. It's also interesting to see their impact. You know, they look they look around, they see billboards and advertising and they're really keen critics of what are they trying to tell us with that billboard, dummy? <laughs> that's not real, is it? That's kind of... I love seeing the world through their observations. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of us don't even um, contemplate the way you live, um, let alone do the way you live. But what I what I love, Mirag, is um, our permaculture life. I love reading your blogs. And last uh, month, which was July, you did a plastic free July, and mm. I really thought about it through that whole month. And it's really, really scary how much plastic I have. And, and when you brought up the, the situation about shampoos and conditioners, I started to think, oh my gosh, how do, you, how do you get out of this? How do you get out of, how do you create, maybe not plastic-free, but reduce your plastic? Um, it got hard. You want to talk about um, yeah, it, how, that, yeah. how you're doing that? It is hard, isn't it? I mean, if you think about in our world, plastic has not always existed. It's been around quite so commonly in the last fifty years that we've had so much plastic, and now it's just it's just it's it's everywhere. And so, actually, to un, unravel our lives from plastic is is quite a significant thing to do. So, the the best spot to start, I think, is really with the single use plastic because. Um, you know, as I was doing the research that, I came across some just remarkable figures like half the world's plastics are only ever used once and then thrown away. And every single piece of plastic, single-use plastic that, that you and I have ever used is still on Earth. Um, half of all the, the seabirds in – more than half the seabirds, 75% of the seabirds in the world are, are thought to have plastic in their guts. There's trillions of tonnes of plastic floating in the ocean and, and therefore half of the world's turtle populations have plastic in their guts. It's everywhere. And then, then there's those things, you know, the the, the, um, the paper cups that we all – a few years ago I was in America and I remember seeing people walking around with their coffee cups and thinking, wow, I'm so glad we don't do that in Australia. <laughs> we sit down with our cup, you know, our ceramic cup at the cafe and, you know, the only time you get a takeaway cup like that is when you go to a – fast food joint and you know I never went to them anyway so I never really used them um but then a few years later it kind of hit Australia now it's just everywhere uh, five billion cups at least get used every every year and that's something like a million a minute and the thing with those even the paper even if you get the paper cups you think you're doing the right thing but they're all got this plastic lining on them so they actually don't biodegrade and that's so yeah it's simple things like the easiest thing to do is to go, okay, what is a single-use plastic? Um, and, that, and then try and find a way to stop that. So first of all, um, you know, just don't buy stuff like cling wrap. We don't need it. You know, if you've got some leftovers, you can put them in, um, you know, reusable containers first up or, or, you know, 
my um my mother-in-law is she's always done just the bowl with a plate on top. But there's this other thing that I've been um, playing around with lately is the beeswax cloths, and I think they're I was going to say the bees' knees, but that's a bit too. <laughs> I won't say they're great. They're, they're fantastic. So it's you know this this piece of natural organic cloth that's infused with um, organic beeswax and maybe a bit of coconut oil, and they just wrap over the top of everything. You can use them to wrap. I don't know everything from. Um, I don't know if you, if you eat cheese, you can wrap a block of proper cheese in that, or um, if any leftovers, you can wrap it around the bowl or on the top of the jar. Um, and they just seal it. So that's a really nice way to do it. And then you can just rinse them off and use them again and again for 12 months. And then when they're finished, they go in your compost bin. Um, the, other, the other really key thing, I think, apart from, you know, taking your own cup, taking your own water bottle and not using clean wrap, they're the three kind of key things, I, I think. When you go and shopping, um, I, I did it with kids as soon as the Plastic Free July started. We started going through and we had this list and we actually ended up coming out of the shop with very little of what was on the list because everything was wrapped. So now, uh, you know, I, I had been spending a lot of time already going to the local co-op, but I've, I've spent much more of my time in there now because I can get every, I can take my own containers. I've made up little cloth bags and I take in jars and I can just keep refilling them over and over and I don't need to take any plastic out of that shop. And I'm, you know, I don't put any fruit in plastic bags. I just take it in the carry bag and, um, and put it on the um, counter and you don't actually need to, to really use plastic if you go through those sorts of ways. And then, of course, growing, growing as much as you can. Uh, you know, all of the salad greens and microgreens and sprouts and fruits and, um, you know, a lot of the herbs, all of the herbs are just, we have such a fantastic climate, particularly around this part of southeast Queensland, that pretty much you can grow a lot of your own food um, all year round. And I, I, one of the things that I do a lot of too is try to show people how that there's, there's actually a lot more food in your garden than what you possibly even imagine this um just take a pumpkin for example so i i actually haven't planted a pumpkin for the last 10 years but they keep coming back year after year because they <laughs> self-seed I, I focus on the soil I, I make sure that the soil is healthy because i think if you've got healthy soil then the food is going to be that comes out of that is going to be so healthy which then supports our own nourishment and and you know for me that's the, the best kind of superfoods the ones that are just coming so naturally out of super soil but anyway if you have super soil you can just get an old pumpkin and toss it in the corner and I, I, it's an interesting thing because we all think about a pumpkin being the pumpkin that we're going to eat but actually the real purpose of a pumpkin is to nourish the seeds within and so if you allow a pumpkin to do its pumpkin thing and let that pumpkin to rot down into this beautiful humus that has all the right nutrients for those pumpkin seeds to emerge, it's the next year. So I always leave one, two, or toss the pumpkin out into the garden and it will just sprout up and climb, clamber over my chicken pen over in summer so they, the chickens get beautiful shade in the summertime. And then I'll have, you know, 50 pumpkins. But the thing is, don't wait for the pumpkin fruit. In the meantime, you've got pumpkin shoots, pumpkin leaves, pumpkin flowers that you can eat. Um, and then when you've got the pumpkin, the pumpkin skin, the pumpkin seeds, 
um, every single part of a choco plant apple. Um, the, if you're growing things like uh, parrots, carrot tops edible, the beetroot leaves are far more nutritious than the beetroots themselves. Um, if you're growing sweet potato, the sweet potato leaves are edible. Um, sweet peas, um, I'm growing, sorry, snow peas I'm growing at the moment. The, the flowers and the shoots of those are all edible. So all of a sudden, when you have even just quite a small garden, if you start to think differently about what you're growing and how you're growing it, all of a sudden you have this sense of abundance. And it takes enormous pressure off actually growing your food. So for even a novice gardener, just simply by shifting your perception about what you have there, you can probably times your production by 10. And I, I, I like to really show people when I walk them through my garden about how, how you can actually have a super abundant garden and, and I wouldn't be out there gardening for about five minutes a day, maybe with a blitz here and there for getting a new section happening and, and for the rest of the time be observing and enjoying and harvesting and teaching your children and teaching others in it. I, I remember um, you did that 30-minute um, t- video about your garden and I absolutely loved that 30 minutes I remember I was in my bed and I I noticed it came online and I just watched it and I felt this I don't know this amazing feeling just watching you go through your garden and the and the other thing that I find absolutely interesting is that when you came through my 60 acres I remember you bending down and going oh my gosh Cindy you have these salad greens I'm like and you know what? I keep going through my sixty acres trying to find those salad greens again. That you're talking about it's it it's like mind-boggling for the city folk that this is possible. That you don't just eat the sweet pea; you have so many other things. You don't just eat the beetroot; you eat the beetroot leaves. And I just feel that we 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 just like we're like toddlers, not even toddlers. We're babies. We have no idea. Um, how to do this and I would implore all of our um, people who follow us is, is to start following you because you really make me think whenever you write something you actually make me think more and more about what I'm doing and I thought I was pretty green she's the exact um, opposite <laughs> but I'm sitting here thinking okay so now I just have a million <laughs> questions because I am so city dweller and let us just let us let us just say this before we say anything else. One has attempted many a time to start a kitchen garden and one has continually failed because one does fail to water one's garden. <laughs> so let me just ask a couple of very basic and, and novice questions, yeah. and please okay. forgive my ignorance. Absolutely. So so coming from somebody with no idea, what is permaculture? What, how, um, okay, so I'm just going to throw them all out there. So what is permaculture? How does a person actually know what is edible on a plant and what is not? Because I would never have known that a pumpkin leaf you could eat. Otherwise, I would probably have been growing pumpkins forever because those leaves are big. Um, and I'm vegan, so for me that would just be the greatest source of, of nutrition. How does how does one actually know all of those things? And then how does one actually create an edible garden um, that works? For goodness' sake, 
Mm-hmm. Because I try, I, honestly, I've tried a couple of times, and if my dogs are not peeing on it, um, <laughs> I'm, I, it. I'm not watering it. And, of course, it goes nowhere fast. And, you know, honestly, Matt just laughs at me now. I said to him the other day, it's so funny actually, I said to Matt the other day, I said, I'm ready to try again. I'm ready to rip out all of our plants because we've got, you know, a garden that sort of surrounds our entire fence line. And I said, I'm ready to rip out all of our plants and trees and put in edible stuff that, you know, we can start to live off our land. And he just cracks up laughing. And he's, you know, he just says to me, he says to me, he said, yeah, 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 that's it. He says to me, hun, it's been 14 years. He said, and we've tried 14 times. He said, I don't know what else to do for you. He said, but the answer is no. <laughs> so, Maura, girlfriend, I'm ready. I feel it in my water. I am ready to take the step and do what I need to do. But to be quite honest, I never, I never have had this as a frame of reference other than this deep internal yearning and longing to um, not be trapped in this consumerist society and to not feel like I'm beholden to Woolies and Coles. I, I really want to be able to um, sustain myself in a far more vital way. So there you go. That's that. And and I don't out. think you're alone. You know, this, this, there's something really primal about getting your hands in the, in the earth. It's, and, and actually producing something that you consume yourself. I, I can't believe how much joy that you can get simply by, you know, pulling your own carrot out of the ground or harvesting your own salad for lunch and serving it up to your friends and then exclaiming how absolutely delicious it is. It's, or for your kids to, to, to eat their greens because they've grown and harvested them with you. And it, and it is, it is a deep long. And, and I think it's also a, you know, people, a lot of us, I think, have maybe grown up without it and mm. it's something that maybe our parents stopped doing because it was, you know, the modern thing was to shop at the, the supermarkets. My, my grandparents or my grandfather grew stuff but my, my parents didn't grow a lot to start with. They talked a lot about it and, and, and encouraged people to do it. We had a few fruit trees but we weren't really big growers. It's something I've had to learn how to do and, and I've learned it a lot by um, I, I did go to landscape architecture school and and um but you know strangely enough in landscape architecture school you don't actually touch any plants you just design them as structural elements in a landscape so that didn't work um it was mostly actually about going and working in community gardens working in villages and farms and and places around the world where I've gone and and sitting beside people who knew stuff. And even now when I go out and do talks, even just the other day, um, you know, I was doing a talk in, in down in Brisbane about, about um, growing your own superfoods in your, in your backyard. And every time I go, someone pipes up and tells me another way that they use that plant or, you know, from a different culture or a different background or a different, you know, some, some perspective that gives me a new piece of information. So it's not a... Kapawi, uh, okay, read this book and you get all your information. Or you do this course and you get all your information. It is an incremental thing, but I, I am working at the moment, which is why, why I'm writing the blog and why I'm doing the, the, um, the pod, uh, sorry, the, um, the YouTube clips 
try to document the stuff that I've learned along my journey and share it as widely with as many people as possible because I really, you know, I just thought it was common knowledge. And then I realized, oh, hang on, no, this is, you know, it's not necessarily and it's really useful stuff and it's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's just a sharing of information that we need to bring this information back into the fore again. Um, so, and, and I'm also working on a book too called The Simple Garden because, you know, it's the stuff that I think that people can easily be able to grasp and get going, get fabulous, abundant, edible gardens happening really, really quickly using this. So there's a lot of different techniques that I use and it's all about focusing on the soil and, and you know, creating no-dig gardens. I think the biggest mistake that a lot of people make is by, you know, going for a lot of raised beds and, and um, pots and also you can grow in pots, of course you can, but I think the, the easiest way to grow is by connecting with the soil because there's something about the soil that is completely different from filling a pot with potting mix. Soil, and if you bring the soil into this healthy environment, there's this whole, the roots go down far deeper than you ever imagine, access nutrients and moisture from the soil. And then there's this, this internet of the soil, there's all the fungal system that communicates. And when the, where the roots stop, the fungal system keeps going and keeps accessing nutrients for the plants. And the more you have them in the ground, the more you feed the soil, the far healthier your plants are going to be for you and for themselves. And the healthier plants, they don't get pest um, issues. I don't do any spraying or anything like that. I plant a lot of little bushes that have flowers so that um, they attract not only the bees for pollination, which is important to make sure you get things growing, but also to attract lots of little insectivorous birds too because if you've got lots of little insectivorous birds, they're going to be packing off all the insects in your garden, the ones that are problems for yourself. So I treat it as an ecological system and I do lots of no-dig gardening that improves the soil. I sink things like... Um, uh, worm towers into the ground, which is simply a pipe that you plunge into the ground. You dig a hole, dig this into the ground with holes underneath and put some earthworms in it. So instead of having to manage an earthworms, uh, uh, sorry, a, a worm farm somewhere else and sort that all out and take that out to your garden, most people I know don't have the time or inclination to do that. So this is simply a pipe in the ground and you just go and tip your food scraps in it and then the, earth, the earthworms and the compost worms do the rest for you. So simplifying things as much as possible. And and I've worked out too that um, actually people like sometimes need to have their hand held through the process. So I, I go out to a lot of people's places and I, you know, even in urban areas, I'm, I'm going to visit someone in, in New Farm in a couple of days and um, I talk to people on properties, mostly, you know, um, medium-sized properties. I, I'm not a big farmer type. I'm more into the garden systems. Um, and I, I walk them through and, you know, they tell me what their dreams are and then I, I walk around in a couple of hours and do a design for them on the spot and 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 then kind of act a bit like a garden mentor, I suppose, to help them create that in their own place. And uh, I just find without doing up massive plans and, and landscape architecture drawings, it's just a simple hand-holding along the journey. And I think sometimes that's all that people need. And then, you know, they follow the blog and get lots of information from that. I'm hoping um, that that they might be able to get on their way. And, and then I do lots of little talks around the community that will also help um, 
help to, you know, get different parts of the information across and be able to have a conversation about it. And I think out of my garden I've given out about 10,000 cuttings over the last year. Um, every time I go to a talk, I take bundle loads of plants so people can feel, taste, touch. And so when they come, they get that sense of what all the different plants that you can include at the different seasons and then walk away with cuttings that they can directly take into their garden and, and plant. Um, so it's it's a really – I guess I'm trying to, to take the enabling role and um, and that's what that's what I think we need more of, the sort of enablers that can help to do this because it's, it's not just a book learning thing and – um, and I know most people have incredibly busy lives, but I guess what I'm trying to share is a, is, a, is a simple system that, you know, within half an hour you can create a garden bed with your kids. It's fun. It's safe. There's no chemicals involved. There's no backbreaking digging. Mostly the resources that you use are, are things that you can either recycle from your natural environment or from your household um, and not make it an expensive thing. You know, there's no point building up this massive garden that's really expensive to set up and then you know get a few hundred dollars worth of vegetables out of it you know it has to be worthwhile so but if you're an absolute beginner i would be starting with herbs herbs are just wonderfully easy some dwarf citrus or fruit trees um and then some perennial hardy perennial plants and i I kind of i've I've got some lists of those sorts of things on my blog and, and i think that you know would be the easiest place to start. And herbs are like weeds, aren't they? Like I look at my herbs that I, I planted and they just keep going and going and going and, and they just they might die off for a little bit and then I notice them sprout again as the warmth comes back in again. Like just recently um, my, was it? I, more my, um, what was it, my mint just kind of died off for a little bit but I noticed with that warm weather we just had that it, it all sprouted again and I didn't do anything. And I've got that no, thing happening I'm, too. And they're miraculous, you know, like and a lot of the winter, a lot of things in the winter do die back like that. And then you'll find as soon as the, yeah, the, the warmth and the humidity comes back, pop, there they are again. And your garden is once again full. And I, I plant a lot of things like turmeric in my garden because I just love having turmeric in so many of my meals. And in wintertime, it, it starts to, yellow off and then it keels over and I get all these people coming to me saying oh my you gave me some turmeric but I'm a terrible gardener and I killed it I said no no you didn't fossick around and bandicoot underneath it and you'll find this great big hands of turmeric holding each other under the soil waiting for you to discover them and if they do they dig around and there there is this you know beautiful you know patch of gold under the ground and um and so they do they die back in the winter time in the subtropics you just dig that all out, store it in a bucket of sand and keep using it in the kitchen and keep some to put back in the ground in October and the whole thing will go again. And, you know, the, at the moment I'm just waiting for all the warmth to come because I know that there's so many things, like you're saying, like with the mint and um, the Brazilian spinach is on all the subtropical abundant plants are just going to start to burst. You know, the mulberry trees are starting to get all their leaf, leaves back and the bananas are shooting off their new leaves and it's just amazing watching it every day it's different and just yeah such a sense of joy yeah it's it's such a simple thing but you know what I find it helps to create such a relaxed and peaceful state of mind that somehow you know even the days that I don't get a chance to do any kind of 
meditation, whatever, just by being in my garden, being in this relaxed space, I just feel really at ease. And I think being in that state just so supports, you know, my own personal health um, and, and also the health of my family, not just the food but just the state of being, I think, creates a really healthy way to live. It's funny, Marie. And, and I guess too... The other side of things that um, that I've been able to create too is that I've built this house, I've only built this house and, and created this garden and done it all in a debt-free way. So that's also an enormous stress off my life and I just find also I'm then free because I, I love what I do. I do I do what I love and I love what I do and I say yes to every fantastic opportunity that comes along and I think I have the freedom to do that because I don't have the, I don't have a debt and I can be quite flexible in, in where I'm going with various things. So I just did it and built my house, a little buildable, affordable modules. Um, you know, I generate all my own power and collect all my own water and deal with all the waste from the house. Um, and it's, and it's, it's such a – and in designing the space too, I tried to integrate in um, the golden me. And so trying to get proportion right and using natural materials and a lot of the materials uh, I, I know the origin of. So my kitchen benches come from about 200 metres away. There was a tree that needed to be felled. So we had a, a mobile sawmill come in and, and slab it up and we stored it underneath and we've sort of finished it off beautifully. And now it wraps around us as we're preparing our meals and and. That sense of connectedness to place as well, I think, also brings a sense of, of I don't know, a sense of natural beauty and calm and connectedness. And um, yeah, I, I don't know how else I can describe it. You know what? I, I think, Mirag, we've we've lost that. You know, for a brief point in time, and it only has been a brief point in time uh, that we don't know anything about gardening we don't know anything about sustainability we've been looked after by the government and the councils we are at a point um where we don't even know how to cook people don't even know how to make bread or even cook a roast these days um we're bringing up generations of people who don't do not know this stuff and don't think it's important but I, I feel that if we don't start changing this, and I've been listening to some um, pretty scary podcasts about geoengineering and which is um, engineering our climate mm. and, um, and the ramifications of geoengineering that we're seeing and people are calling it climate change, but in actual fact they believe it's the, you know, the geoengineering. And I... I wondered, are we going to need these skills uh, because the planet isn't going to be able to, number one, grow for the 10 billion people that are expected to be on this planet? Uh, you know, I, I often wonder, are these skills going to be very, very important in the future, whereas nobody sees them as important at the moment? There's only a very small group of people like you, Mirag, that uh are going to the degree that you're, you know, that you have gone to. I try to. Um, I try to. I keep thinking I'm doing it until I meet someone like you and then I go, oh, my gosh, I'm nowhere near it. <laughs> so, 
So I just think yeah, well, that you've, you've, you've raised up a whole lot of really interesting points there. And, um, you know, I do think they're really valuable skills. And I, every day I'm finding new things that I, that I think, oh, gosh, that would be a really amazing thing to learn. You know, not that long ago I learned how to make my own salves and, and, um, and creams and beauty products. And, I've, you know, I now even make my own uh, laundry detergent and all different sorts of things like that and not out of a sense of fear. I never come at this from a sense of fear because I think I remember when I was in when I was about 19 or 20 and when I was operating from a, a, a place of fear and I would go around and I'd talk to everyone how we had to change and we had to do this and had to do that and I just gradually saw people's eyes glazing over <laughs> and, they, you know, they'd see me coming and kind of walk away and I've, I've decided, you know, right back then that how – the way to actually help to bring about change and awareness of the importance of this is to actually live it and do it and show how amazingly joyful and, and wonderful and interesting and and happy it can be. And um and I you know going back to that story of Dark too, one of the, I think that one of the pivotal points was was that just like you were saying about learning about how to grow bread. Um, how, how to, um, well, it was growing bread, but how to make bread. I had no idea back then how to do any of that kind of stuff. I'd, um, and I, I got to Ladakh and I felt like this useful, useless, useless Westerner stuck in the middle of a panic going, taking over all the little child's jobs. And they were kind of getting a little bit annoyed at me because I was doing their stuff. But gradually I learned bit by bit, I learned actually how to harvest the grain and how to, we we were we worked with the yaks up there to separate the grain, and we would sing a special song to them as they harvested the gra- as they separated the grain from the stalks. And then you you'd be whistling a song as you thresh the grain, and you take the grain in sacks on your backs, like with the with the yaks down to the down to the river. And the river had been directed to put this the water high up and then drop down to a stone mill, and one by one. Click, click, click. It would have this beautiful little simple technology to grind the grain in this slow grind. And it wasn't just one grain. There were nine grains growing in this field. So there was there was legumes and old varieties, all different sorts of things blended up together. It was the most beautiful bread. And then you so you take that flour back out of the mill and you would then need to um, milk the yak to get the milk and make some yogurt, which was the raising agent. And and then to fuel fuel the cooking of this, you would need to kind of get the yak dung and have dried that on the on the stone walls for a few days, and then use that to cook it up. And so this whole process about getting bread and understanding all that was involved, from the fuel to the growing to the to the river management, um, and then and then actually the cooking it, it was it was the most. Uh, enlightening experience and, and as I sat there and I ate this piece of bread and spread on some some butter that I'd, I'd made from the yak milk I just I kind of took me to some other place and I realized that how absolutely useless I'd become I, I was very knowledgeable I was a very intelligent young woman who knew how to go and get a job to earn some income to go and buy some really lovely bread but I realized at that point that there was something really meaningful and important about actually knowing how to do it and particularly when we really want to have a stable healthy life because we we give over our power and we give over control of what's going on in our food system as soon as we 
just uh, let go of, of how things all happen. And I'm not saying that we need to do everything ourselves. I think that's just such a slog. I don't think self-sufficiency is the way. It's about creating a community self-reliance. So, you know, within my community, there's a, there's a guy who makes the most amazing organic sourdough, um, beautiful breads that are wood-fired, and there's someone else who's the who makes you know who has the the honey bees, and there's someone else who does all the different parts. And together, and with the broader region too of Nalani, we have this amazing local food network, and we're all we're all part of that. So one of the things that I find um, really important about what you're saying too about feeding the world's people um, is that. Um, there is actually enough food in the world being grown, but we just waste so much of it. Um, I think probably half of the food that is grown in the world is wasted before it actually gets to our plates. And, and a lot of that food is, is food that's absolutely perfectly okay. It's just a bit wonky. So you might have heard of the whole ugly food movement and things like that, but the, you know, I don't think it's, we should call it ugly food. It's just nature's great. What is wrong with a, a wonky carrot or an apple that has a bit of a dimple in it? There's nothing's wrong with it. So half the food is thrown out before it gets to the shops. And then once we get it into our own homes, we throw out another half of it, um, you know, that gets stuck in the back of our fridges or that we cook too much. Excuse me. I just need to get little Monty to um, fine. Monty head off. Be part of the I podcast. Said, uh, hello. They can't hey, see. You have to say hello. Hello. Hello, Monty. Hello, Monty. You can go downstairs and ask Daddy to get it for you, okay? I'll just I'll just need to call Daddy and, and let him know that you're up here. Okay, thank you. Lovely, Monty. Excuse me one moment. Do you know what's really interesting, guys? I was listening to a podcast the other day about the amount of food that was created in 2011, and I popped it up on my Facebook page. Yeah. In 2011, there were 6.2 billion people on the planet. There was enough food created for 7.8 billion people. In 2011, there was only 6.2 billion people and there was enough food created for 7.8 billion, yet half the planet is still starving. Yeah, yeah. it's political. It's, that's what it is. Totally, it? totally. In my and it's, um, it's just the other thing too that's really important that I find is that, 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 that um, you know, then it gives you people an argument, the corporations an argument to say, okay, well, we need more GMOs, we need more nano feed, we need uh, nano food, we need more this and that to produce more and more and more food. That's not actually the issue. Um, and even if we did produce more of that food, the money from that food or where that food goes would actually probably not get to the people who need it the most. Um, the Food and Agriculture Organization has said that small-scale, sustainable, diverse polycultural farms, kind of like you know the permaculture farms that I talk about, is where the future of feeding the world's people um, has to go and that's where we need to put in the support, not into supporting the major mega farm. I mean, there's six companies in the world that pretty much that feed most of the world's, um, you know, that provide most of the seeds and all of that sort of stuff. It's about you know, taking the power away from that and playing a different game, saying, okay, in actually to feed us, to feed the world's people, to, to avert hunger and poverty, and to create sustainable food systems, we need to have small-scale, local, sustainable, family-owned, community-owned um, food systems. And, and we need to support that um, 
in, in the wealthy countries as well as in the, in the poorer countries. Um, can I ask you, Maureen, you're here on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and everything. What would it take for the council or for people like yourself to influence councils so that we become, or anyone else in their own community, can help councils to understand that we don't need Roundup being sprayed, that we can actually create edible gardens as part of our um, community? Is that hard to influence in a community or is it hard for you to access politicians to do this sort of thing? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, probably about 15 years ago, the Brisbane City Council invited me to um, prepare a, uh, an urban agriculture discussion paper to explore all the different ways that they could include urban agriculture into their metropolitan planning process through to 2020. And it took a while for the little bits to come through, but I'm gradually seeing more and more of that community gardens are just going blockbuster in in um, Brisbane City Council, um, verge gardens are taking off. There's um, rooftop gardens. There's all different sorts of things that are starting to come out. One of the things that I've been really pushing, though, is to have things like um, farmland trusts because some of the best agricultural land in most cities and towns around the world is actually in and around the towns themselves. That's why the cities were built there. But as our cities expand, they've been building over that best agricultural land. We're seeing that in, happening on the Sunshine Coast. We're seeing it in the um, around Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney. Um, you know, the whole Hawkesbury area is you know getting decimated now. We need the councils to actually um, create things. You know, they've done bushland trusts to protect the natural bushland in around cities. We also need to have farmland trusts. So if you think in 50 years' time, where is the food going to come from to feed the people who live in the cities? I mean, Australia has one of the hot, most most urbanised populations in the world. Uh, where are we going to feed them from? You know, if there's issues around climate change or issues around um, rising fuel costs, we're not going to be able to transport food such a long distance. We need to protect our little farmlands in and around the cities where we can do intensely, you know, intense um, urban agriculture. I mean, it's shown that urban agriculture is actually at least 14 times more productive than um, broad-scale agriculture because it's just done in such a more compact way. So that the councils are listening. They are open to it. There's conversations happening all the time. Um, I, I talk regularly with the with the council down on the Sunshine Coast about um, particularly things like community gardens and um, school gardens and birch gardens. And, and they're actually one of one of the biggest supporters of some of the programs I run. Um, they they help to sponsor me to run free community education programs. So I go out into lots of different community centres and libraries and schools and all different places and are able to offer this type of education for free to anyone who wants to come. Um, and and they support me to do that. So there is there is an openness, there is a support, and I was absolutely amazed. Actually, you know, I'm not saying that they're you know they've got all their systems going in terms of their park management stuff, but they do have some really interesting soil management strategies. The guys who are in the parks management are open um, to change, and I, I had a meeting with them not that long ago, and they're incredibly supportive of people who want to start community gardens. For example, if you want to start a community garden in, on public land in the Sunshine Coast, you just need to talk to the council. They'll help you find the tools. They'll, help you, they'll give you seeds, organic seeds. Um, they'll even come out and help you get it going. 
And and I think really it's just about um, getting together with your friends and neighbours and asking, you know, there is the support there. There is and something I started a really long time with a group of friends from different parts of Australia's, um, the Australian City Farms and Community Gardens Network. And on that site is such a wealth of information over the last um, decade or two about how to get gardens happening and community gardens happening. So actually doing it with your friends and neighbours is fantastic. There's a, pro- there's a project in the middle of Sydney, actually two kilometres from the middle of Sydney called, um, well, it's in Chippendale. Uh, it's called Sustainability Street, and they've got almost no land in their house yards. They're all terrace houses, so they're taking it to the streets and planting citrus along the verges and building up herb boxes. And because they don't have any space to compost, they have community compost bins. And and in these, I think they've now spread out across six blocks and doing all of this. And um, and it's just remarkable the amount of wastewater they've diverted from the um, from the from the pipes, the amount of food scraps they've diverted. They've even got this, they've worked, um, a guy called Michael Mobbs, he's even got inspired to go down to Bondi Junction and, and set up something called the, the Bondi Gobbler. So uh, what, you know, we think about composting at home, but actually restaurants and public spaces is where a lot of food gets wasted. So right in Bondi where there's a lot of cafes and restaurants, he installed this composting system, massive one, that all the cafes and restaurants put all their food scraps into. And in 24 hours, this machine turns it into a material that's that's like a compost. And then a local farmer comes and collects that all and takes it out to his farm just on the edge of town. And I think that is an amazing system where the city is connected to the, the urban, peri-urban areas or to community farms where our nutrients are actually getting cycled directly back into the landscape. We just, we waste so much food, we waste, and we waste it at the first instance and then once we're finished, we mostly just chuck it in the bin. Um, I think over... We've actually got such an incredible, um, amazing amount of knowledge and I think, unfortunately, we're coming to the end, but what I want to say is, first of all, would you be interested in coming back Um, and and maybe we could do one show exactly on how to start your own garden or do something that's really uh, basic and do a how-to so we can... Um, because I think this is going to blow a few people's minds as to what on earth it is that we're missing here. You know, we're all missing a lot of the point because we get so consumed in this very consumable world. And I'd love to, I'd love to summarize a few things that you've highlighted, if that's possible. And then maybe we can finish off with a, a quick, I don't know, your five-step plan on what we could do from here. But I think it needs another whole show as to where we could start, particularly with most of our people that are listening to the show are definitely in communities of, of more suburban areas. So can I get your okay on that? Can we get you back? That sounds like a fantastic idea. <laughs> I would love to. I'd be honoured to. Oh, well, we would love it. But let me see what I've taken from your talk so far. I mean, the first thing that I picked up on is that our ethics and values are definitely inbred from our parents. Um, now that means what I've taken from you, not all of us had your privileged upbringing. So that doesn't mean to say that we can't change it for future generations by learning it this time round. And I think you've been very blessed to have been brought up in that way. I love the way that you look at nature 
And I added this in that it's almost like a natural meditation. When you pay attention to nature, you are meditating. And that's what a lot of suburban people are looking for, how to meditate. I took from your conversation this morning and what you were doing in nature, that is meditation. And I think we can do that in our local, wherever we live, there's an opportunity for that. I think when you said everything has a context for learning, um, so life is an experience, you just need to be aware of being in it and do something real every day, like putting your hands in dirt. I thought that was an amazing aha. See the world through your kids' eyes and the world opens up tenfold I love the way you talk about that most of us that are parents will always be blown away by the beautiful wisdom and amazing conversations that you can have if you just ask the question or listen and watch the healthier the earth is the healthier we all become it's time we all learn to look after it more I loved your three quick tips about a quick thing to go to which is what is a single-use plastic and perhaps Mm. don't have it in the house Cling film or Glad Wrap is the perfect thing. Using reusable containers and beeswax cloths, which Karen and I have already signed up and bought our first lot while we were talking. <laughs> um, yes, I just have to, let me just say I do have to apologise. I actually went onto a website and started playing music. So. <laughs> we noticed. <laughs> I'm um, so sorry. You know, I loved your idea of taking your own cup when you go for a coffee, when you know you're going for a coffee, take your own cup. I, I don't think. That that was just amazing, obvious point that we could do. Um, your own water bottle. I, I, I mean, I think we all take our own glass water bottles, especially the three of us, but I love the fact that, you know, it's just another tip to, to be aware of. Grow as much as you can. There is more food in your garden than you can ever imagine. Um, just the point for Karen and I, particularly knowing that you can eat pumpkin leaves and what to do with a pumpkin and and one of my points here is a pumpkin ain't just a pumpkin. <laughs> Keep your soil healthy. It's the best superfoods come out of super soil. And I would really love in our next podcast that we do with you for us to, uh, you know, I'd really love to know how do I make my soil a super soil. That would be really cool rather than just going and getting potting mix because I feel really virtuous buying potting mix. But, um, <laughs> now I want to know how to get that amazing soil looking super. <laughs> You often learn more from sitting and being with people on the land than you do reading about it or studying about it. So I really love that point of being. That's why I'm so, we, Karen and I are so excited that Cindy has her land because we are going to be her, her bitches. We'll be the bitches in the land. (laughs) Um, Healthy plants do not have pest issues, which is an interesting point. And, And I can see that when I look at your pictures on your website of your garden, I don't see a lot of issues with plants and maybe pest issues is a sign that your garden isn't healthy rather mm. than, than we have pests. Treat your garden as one big ecosystem. Start out with herbs, dwarf citrus trees and hardy perennial plants. I love that. And we give our power over every time we buy something. Maybe it's time to start creating a community of providers. In other words, different food networks where we have small, sustainable, community-owned food networks. And maybe it's time to really start asking the council for farmland trusts, not just bushland trusts. There's enough food to be grown. We do waste so much. Maybe it's about even the awareness of composting. Ugly food is nature's food. It's not ugly. Um, (laughs) And I think to, to finish up that we all have a voice and that we can indeed 
um, be part of a community awareness and be part of the program. And just this podcast alone, Karen said it at the beginning, this was probably going to blow all our minds and it certainly brought me back into You've actually made my alpha waves absolutely hum beautifully. My beta waves have switched off. I'm now into alpha. (laughs) And just hearing you talk and the way you are, it's it's made me feel very much like I want to go. I've been looking at my garden trying to work out what to do with it. So I'm wondering if you'd like a cup of tea at my house. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be great. I'd love to come over. Then whip on over to mine. I'm 700 metres away from Kimmy. (laughs) Then you can whip on over to my place and then we can just... With cake. (laughs) No. Oh, yeah, I have a really great idea. It's actually if you gather a few people together and we can all go to one person's place and learn together about what you need to do in one place and then all go together and learn together what to do at the next person's place. And so you get different ideas from different places and then it, it's kind of actually like a mini workshop in a way but helps everybody. Maybe. And then they become mm-hmm. your bitches, right? So we've got everybody in the garden. They're your students that you say, oh, you offer community school courses, but we really know what's underneath it. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Morag, how, how can we find you? How can everyone look for you and, and your blog? I mean, it's just incredible. And, you know, for a lot of people listening to this, go to your blog. I've looked at it. You've, all the questions Karen and I have been asking, you've actually written a blog on it. So how can we find you, sweetheart? Okay, um, my blog is ourpermaculturelife.blogspot.com and it's actually our-permaculture-life.blogspot.com. Um, and I also run a not-for-profit foundation called the Ethos Foundation and the website for that is ethosfoundation.org and that's where you can find all the information about the short workshops that I run about all the the skills that you need for this simple and abundant living. I run one-day workshops for adults, but I also run nature connection programs for kids. Um, There's a few things coming up in the school holidays and also a program I really love, which is called the Young Ethos Scholars, and it's actually an extension program for for kids to really take the leaders in in, of the kids and, and Fill their minds with amazing possibilities of where they're going to go in the, in the world, but but having that that ecological and heart focus really at the at the at the grounding level for all the decisions they're going to make as they head out into their life. So yeah, that's that's the kind of that's the sorts of things that you'll find on ethosfoundation.org, and my blog is where you find all the tips. Um, and I've started making a weekly film, and that's on my YouTube channel, which is also Our Permaculture Life. But they can also find you on Facebook. Oh, um, of course. That's where I yes, get I'm, I'm all my And Instagram on. now, too. Oh, yes. good. So they just look up Marag Gamble on Facebook, M O R A G G A M B L E, because. You, you seem to, like you post your videos on there, so I'll be flicking through and I'll see your video and then I'll just sit there and watch you go through your garden or talk about edible flowers or, I don't know, you just the plastic in thing. I just, I just I really enjoy what you're doing. You're making me think more about what I do in my life and my consumerism and I'm, I'm trying my best to stop it. <laughs> and, you know, I th- maybe I think we should film you doing mine and Karen's garden. <laughs> I think that would that way everyone would get it. No. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> so our next podcast with, with with you will be how to be a permaculturalist with ease. That's what I've decided. <laughs> the simple gardener. Yeah. yeah, the simple garden. Nice. Yeah. Nice. We look forward to that. Nice, nice, nice.
Wonderful, Laura. Thank you so much for being a part of today's show. It has been amazing. Thank you for having me. I've had such a <laughs> such a fun with you all. <laughs> You're incredible. Yes, you are quite funny. Kimmy's been quite funny today. I will definitely give her that. Yes, yes, yes. She's been quite hysterical. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so for everybody listening to today's podcast, hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as we have and you'll just be hanging on every word and tender hooks for us to have more out back on the show. Go to our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. And post your questions or comments right there so that we know what to ask Morag and what you'd specifically like for us to cover on our next show. Also, you can post your comments at all the W's thewellcouch.com forward slash up for a chat. So make sure that you tune in next week right here on Up for a Chat where you can become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. And we are going to continue to see you on the ride. Big hugs coming your way. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.